The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to take your Bibles now and if you would open them to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 24. This is a uh, an interesting passage of Scripture, one that's quite difficult to interpret as to the time period that Jesus is talking about. And we're going to spend uh, our lesson this morning talking about that particular issue. But here in this 24th chapter, Jesus is discussing the end times as he takes questions from the disciples about the coming glorious kingdom of God. Most of us are interested in that. Whenever somebody talks about the end times, people will sit up and they'll pay attention. Either they pay attention because they're curious about whether someone has some special insight as to when the world will end, or people are curious because they just want to make fun of some other religious nut. But those of us that are true Christians, we are very interested in this because what happens at the end is a key component of our faith. We became Christians because of what will happen at the end, whether it's at the end of our lives or at the end of the world. We are Bible believers, and the second most often talked about subject in the Bible is this very thing, the end times, the second coming of Christ. And Jesus taught us to pray about it. He taught us to pray for the kingdom to come because that's when our hope for a world that is upside down will be turned right side up. And we're also taught to think about the kingdom because it's always directly tied to the way that we live. Knowledge that Christ could appear at any time will cause us to purify the way that we live. As John said, we don't want to be ashamed when the Lord comes. And in this text of Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus discussed the end of the world And his purpose was to answer the disciples' questions and to set them straight about what was going to happen after the cross. Now, you remember, he's just a couple of days away from going to the cross. And if he were to leave and the disciples didn't have the benefit of this information, they would be very confused. Now, they're they're already confused about what he said about going to the cross in the first place. At this point, they don't understand all of that, even though he's taught them several times on the subject. And so if he were to leave them and not tell them about these particular things, that would probably leave them without any hope that anything that he taught them was true. So what did Jesus have to say about the end? And in particular, dealing with the coming kingdom that he would establish upon the earth. Well, let's look at this in Matthew chapter 24. Stand with me as we read scripture today. And we're going to start at verse number 3 and read down through verse number 14. Matthew 24 and verse number 3. And as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came unto him privately, saying, Tell us, when shall these things be, and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world? Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that ye be not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. 
For nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be famines and pestilences and earthquakes in divers places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then shall they deliver you to be afflicted, and shall kill you. And ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, you'd help us as we explain scriptures today. Help us to get the truth that you'd have us to know. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Let me just give you a brief explanation of the first two parts of our outline. The points that we discussed in the first two messages, first of all, was the importance of the study. Why do we study the end times? And I've already pointed out uh, in our lesson thus far that the discussion of eschatology is the second most frequent topic that we find in Scripture. The first most important thing of Scripture is the topic of faith, and then very closely following behind that, the Bible has very, very much to say about the second coming of Christ. And because there is so much scripture on this, so much in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that definitely tells us that it's a subject that God wants us to know, and God wants us to know this very well. In fact, the scriptures explicitly say that we're going to be blessed by the study. John said that we would be blessed if we study the prophecies of Revelation, and of course those prophecies are about what will happen at the end. And the blessings that flow out of the study are things like hope, the hope that we have in troubled times, that whatever the world throws against us, we know it's only a temporary thing, it's only a temporary struggle, and the devil will influence the world only for so long, as long as God lets him, and then Christ will come and he will change everything and put it back the way that it's supposed to be. We're blessed by this study because it makes us different people. If we do truly believe that Jesus is coming, that will change our lives. It will make us obedient Christians. And obedience is actually a key to blessing because the thought that Christ could come at any time makes us much more aware of how we should live in the light of his presence. Studying about the end times will keep us from being deceived. And Jesus said in verse number 4, Take heed that no man deceive you. And so, knowing what the Bible has to say about this subject will keep us from being caught up in many of the wild and crazy ideas that you hear people teach about the coming of Christ. And you can turn on your television at just about any time and you'll find people talking about prophecy and speaking of end times and trying to describe to you what that's going to be like and even putting dates on the time that Jesus will come again. And so the Bible says, study these things so those kinds of people will not deceive you. And so this is good for us to know, and Jesus would not have spent this much time discussing this particular topic if God did not want to know it well, as I said just a moment ago. Well, the next thing that we talked about was the impression of the disciples. The disciples had their own interpretation of what would happen at the end. Uh, They had read the Old Testament scriptures. The rabbis had taught them. 
But unfortunately, there was a misguided view about what would happen. They believed that the Messiah would come, and then his appearance would be an indicator that the kingdom was ready to begin right then. The Bible said in the Old Testament that he would be preceded, the Christ would be preceded by one who would announce him. And just as the Old Testament said, along came John the Baptist. And when the disciples saw John and they heard the message that he preached and said that the Christ is coming and prepare and repent and be ready for that, then they thought, well, this thing fits. The man who announces, the the one who is to proclaim the coming of the Christ, he said that Christ is here. And so that must mean that the kingdom is about to begin. And then they also believed that there was a time of tribulation that was coming. They thought and they'd been taught that there would be this period of tribulation before Christ begins the kingdom. And Jesus knew what they thought about that. And so he said in these following verses that they were not to believe that the immediate tribulation that was coming was not a sign that the end was near. Now in verse number 2, he told about the destruction of the temple. Back in chapter 23, he told the religious leaders that their house would be left desolate. And so that's the very thing that prompted these questions in verse number 3. They wanted to know, when is this going to happen? When is the temple going to be destroyed? What is the sign of your presence with us that the world, you will rule the world as a king? And the opinion was, it was soon upon them. The temple would be destroyed. That would be the time of tribulation that they were looking for. And then the next step must be the fullness of the kingdom. Now at this point, I have to tell you that the error that Jesus sought to avoid as he taught the disciples this has actually become the eschatological position of many Christians. There are many people today who believe that chapter 24 is something that happened in the past and things that are being fulfilled in this very hour in which we live. And so they say the destruction of the temple marked the beginning of a new era, and Matthew 24 speaks of the church, and the tribulation is upon us, or it's past, and things are going to get better and better and better, until finally there will be the physical appearance of Christ. And for those of you that are keeping score, that would be the post-millennial and the amillennial position. The post-millennial position is that Christians will usher in the kingdom of Christ. The world will get better. And as it does and the kingdom is here, then Christ will come. Whereas the all-mill position says that we're living in a spiritual kingdom right now. And that there is actually going to be no literal kingdom of Christ upon the earth. And that seems to me precisely what Jesus did not want them to believe And he scatters references throughout this chapter to show that that is not the case. Well, what I want to do now is to shift from the disciples' impression of the end times, and let's go into Jesus' instructions that set the record straight about what he's talking about here and how the end is going to come. So thirdly are the instructions of Jesus. What were they to believe, and what were you to believe? Now, someone asked me to explain what we believe about the end times, and that's what I'm going to do over the next several weeks. Uh, I do think it's good for us to challenge our beliefs with the Scriptures. We want to make sure we know what we know, why we believe what we believe, and why that we think that the premillennial dispensation or viewpoint is actually correct. And that might not mean very much to you right now, but as we go on, hopefully it will.
Now, this part of the study then is going to take us into other places of the New Testament, and we'll see here that Jesus, or in those places, that Jesus is not speaking of the time of the disciples. And he's not speaking of the time between the disciples and now. But rather, he's talking about a future time. And so beginning at verse number 4, nothing about what he has to say here has happened thus far. Now, I will say that there are similarities to things that we have seen. There are applications in these verses that can be made to things that happen today, and Brother Dalton pointed out some of those this morning. But the text is actually talking about the end times, and it's talking about the the very last times, what's going to happen before the kingdom of Christ begins. And so before verse number four, uh, then we would say, yes, he's talking about things that happened in the disciples' time because he speaks of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Those are things that have happened. But when you get to verse number four, the Olivet Discourse begins, and there Jesus talks about the future, and he's not talking about something that's already happened. And so Jesus wanted to guard against a mistaken impression that the coming destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem would be the indication of the end and that it would mark the beginning of a a kingdom that's spoken of in the Old Testament. So there are many things in these verses that we do experience today, but these are not the same experiences that will mark the end. In verse number 5, it says there are false Christ. In verse 6, there are wars. Verse 7 speaks of famines and pestilences and earthquakes. In verse number 9, there are persecutions. In verse number 10, betrayals. In verse 12, cold hearts towards the things of God. And we have seen all of those things. In the past 2,000 years, all of those things have been seen. But you'll notice that each time that Jesus speaks about these in these verses, he says the end is not yet. And so is he talking about something that's happened in the past, or is he referring to something that's yet in the future? Well, the first thing that I'd like for us to look at today are clues to the timing of the text. Clues to the timing of the text. And I think there are some clues that are in these scriptures that will help us to figure this out. And we do need to look at them carefully. Uh, All the expressions of scripture have meaning. And what we do is we study the Bible, we get into those expressions, we try to find the meanings, and that helps us to discover what the author's original intent was. Well, there's a key verse in this section that's going to help us. So here is your first clue. It's a, it's a very key piece. If you'll look at verse number 8, it says, All these things are the beginning of sorrows. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said sorrows? Well, that's our first clue. Sorrows equals birth pains. Our King James Version says sorrows, and that's a good translation, but it begs further investigation because the original word actually means birth pains. It means pains, like when a woman goes into labor. I've never been a mother. I am a father. And as fathers or potential fathers, we're taxed with the responsibility of getting mom to the hospital when she goes into labor. And so we cautiously approach those last few months of pregnancy, especially in the ninth month. We cautiously approach that because we know that the birth pains will start and we have to be ready at a moment's notice to rush mom to the hospital. 
If you really want to get some insight on that, you, you need to talk to Jared. Uh, when, Lauren, when Lauren was in labor with Jolie, the contractions started quickly, the birth pains came suddenly, and they were so fast that there was no time to go to the hospital. Now, fortunately, uh, Lauren is a labor and delivery nurse, and so she gave Jared instructions about how to deliver babies while in the process. And so Jared delivered Jolie on the bedroom floor. And he took his shoelace out of his shoes and tied off the umbilical cord and cut it. And about that, at that point, I think most of us probably would have fainted. Uh, I would have been of no use in that kind of a situation. But both of them working in hospitals, they're able to handle all of that. And so you take that kind of experience and you apply it to what Jesus says here. And he's talking about birth pains. And whenever the Bible wants to talk about the immediacy of events, it uses expressions like this. Now, I want you to turn, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I want to show you how the Bible uses this particular expression. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing about this, and he's discussing some of the very same things that, that uh, Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 24. Now, in the fourth chapter, uh, a part that I'm sure that you're familiar with, Jesus, or Paul rather, writes about the rapture of the church, and we're going to return to that in just a moment. But in chapter 5, he talks about the, the quickness of the coming of the Lord, and he says that the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Now, let's start reading at verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But of the times and the seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. And verse 1, Paul says, I don't need to go into the details right now. You've been taught on this subject. Jesus taught on this subject. And as you know, the coming of Christ happens quickly and unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Now notice what he says in verse 3. For when they shall say, peace and safety, sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now, the travail there that he's talking about is, is the labor, the woman going into labor to have a child. And here he's speaking about immediacy. The woman is going into labor, and as soon as those pains start, then you know that a baby is about to be born. And that's the way that Jesus speaks in Matthew 24, that each of these events, as we follow them down through these few verses from, from verse number 4 on down, each of these events is a birth pain, it's a labor pain, and that indicates that the kingdom is coming soon. And I would submit to you that the coming of the Lord like a thief in the night and the kingdom about to come as a baby that's going to be delivered makes absolutely no sense if the events of Matthew 24 happened over thousands of years. And so that tells us that Jesus can't be speaking of anything here that happened in the past. He's, he must be speaking of sudden events. So he must be speaking of something that's in the future, that the sudden events will come. They are like labor pains, and they indicate the end. And so the wars that you see in chapter 24 are not wars that we've already seen. The famines are not famines that we've seen. The earthquakes are not earthquakes that we've seen. The afflictions are not afflictions that we have seen. Those are not the birth pains, not anything that we've seen. Because nothing that we've seen have brought forth anything suddenly. So Jesus must be talking about a future time 
And the Bible says that there is this future time when all of these things will happen. That a time of tribulation is coming upon the entire world. And in 2 Thessalonians and also in Revelation, the tribulation, that terrible time, is described. And when you read that, you'll see that it's nothing like anything that we've seen. And when we start to break these verses down, we'll look at the descriptions that Jesus had in mind. The birth pains are coming. And when the birth pains come, that means that Christ's kingdom is about to begin. Now, there's another clue that we see, and that's in verse number 13. It says, but he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. So clue number two is this phrase, endure to the end. Those that endure to the end will be saved. Now, folks, that can't refer to the time of the disciples. It can't refer to the destruction of Jerusalem. It can't refer to anything that's happened in the past 2,000 years because there is no one who has yet lived to the end. You can't endure to the end if you're not there at the end. And so he's not referring to the end of you. He's referring to the end of the world. And isn't that exactly the subject of the verses? That's what they wanted to know. When is the end of the world? And so the disciples are dead Persecuted Christians of the church are dead. Now, it could be that this includes some people that are living right now. They will endure to the end because the rapture could happen in the next split second. But Jesus is really not talking about those people because Matthew 24 has nothing at all to do with the rapture. Jesus is talking here about the kingdom, about the coming kingdom. He's speaking of the, to the nation of Israel and how that salvation will come to the Jews and their entrance into the millennial kingdom, the one that's promised in the Old Testament. And so when the tribulation comes, there will be millions of Jews and Gentiles that will be saved, and they will endure the hardships of the tribulation. They'll stay, they will stay faithful in that time. They'll not surrender their faith. And as we'll study a little bit later, these people are not going to take the mark of the Antichrist. They're not going to follow him. They are going to endure to the end. They'll keep their faith. They'll not turn away from Christ, as so many people will. So we see here that endure to the end means you have to live in those times. And in those times, to be truly saved, you would be a person who does not turn away from Christ under all the terrible persecutions that come. And so Jesus is not talking about anybody that's already died. And he can't be speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem. These are verses that concern the tribulation in the very last times that comes on the Jews, their tribulation. And believers that endure to the end will be saved and they will go into the kingdom. Well, there's a third clue in the text that tells us that Jesus is not talking of the time of the disciples in that age or any time between then and now. And that's in verse number 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now, clue number three is the gospel preached to the whole world. Now, it's very common for interpreters to look at this and say that all the world there, preached in all the world, means the Roman Empire. Now, that's a little bit short-sighted, I think, in view of the global nature of this passage, because between verses 4 and 14, the tribulation is global, 
And so the preaching of the gospel in verse number 14 must also be global. Now, in the time of the disciples, the gospel had not reached the whole world. The the church was just getting started. By A.D. 70, the gospel had not been preached to everybody. There were places in the world that had never heard of Christ, and there are still places in the world that have not heard of Christ. We could skip over millions of people that are in Africa and in the Middle East and those in Europe. Uh, Those were the known places at, at the time that Jesus is speaking, and not all of them had been reached. And we think about North America and South America and Australia and islands like the Philippines and the Polynesians. Those were the unknown places of the world, and certainly they hadn't been reached. But aren't those people also those who need to hear the gospel of Christ? None of them had been reached. So the end that he's speaking of here could not be the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 because the end will not come until the gospel is preached in all of the world. And I can tell you, it didn't happen then, and it hasn't happened yet. We send out missionaries. We spend thousands of dollars because this has not happened yet. Now, often mission boards speak of the 1040 window. We've got a picture of the 1040 window. That's the area between the, the 10th and the 4th parallels. And here you see a picture of the Eastern Hemisphere, and that is the least evangelized part of the world. There are millions upon millions, even billions of people in that part of the world that have not heard the gospel of Christ. So Jesus was not talking about any time that's before us, not any time that the whole world's been reached with the gospel. And he said very specifically here that the end will not come until that happens. It didn't happen in AD 70 and it hasn't happened yet. So we must be speaking of a future time when the gospel will have been preached to all people. Now here's another thing that you should know, that sometimes missionaries and mission boards will misuse this scripture and they will tell you that the Lord can't come until this promise is fulfilled. Now they need to raise money. Uh, There's a sense of urgency that they want to instill in people. And so they preach this as if there is something that we can do that can alter the time of Christ's return. But if you look at it in the right way, the way they're teaching that, it makes for a pretty bleak picture. Because you look at that map, and there are places where Islam rules, and in some of those places you can't get one missionary in, much less an army of them that it would take to reach all of those people. And you say, what about TV? What about radio? Well, there's people in those places that have never seen a TV. They don't have Comcast or UVerse. And so if the mission boards are right, we would be looking at a long prohibitive time that prevents Christ from bringing the kingdom. But they're actually wrong on two fronts. Number one is Jesus is not talking about the rapture not speaking about the rapture at all. And secondly, God has a supernatural plan that will make this happen before his kingdom comes. Now, I'm going to save the plan for a later time as we break the verses down, but I will tell you this, that there is nothing that prevents Jesus Christ from coming back before I end this sermon. And I hope that he does. And if he does, he has a plan to preach the gospel to every person that is in the world. And when he's ready, he will come. Nothing is going to stop the coming of Christ. Certainly not this particular verse. Let me give you a fourth clue. Number four, 
is the arrival of the Antichrist. Now, we didn't read this far, but verse number 15 speaks of the Antichrist, and that is yet another of the birth pains that shows that the kingdom is getting even closer. The pains are getting stronger when the Antichrist comes, and the amount of time between his appearance and the coming of the kingdom is very short. Now, the Antichrist did not appear before the destruction of Jerusalem. And the Antichrist hasn't appeared yet, or at least we can't identify him yet. One of the world's leaders today could be the Antichrist, but we don't know that just yet. But in any case, what we see here, the, the suddenness of the birth of the baby, the coming of Christ to begin the kingdom, the ability to live to the end, the universal preaching of the gospel, the appearance of the Antichrist, all of that tells us that Jesus was correcting misconceptions that A.D. 70 would be the time of the kingdom. Now, he wasn't speaking of the disciples' times. He was speaking of the future. And Matthew chapter 24 should be interpreted as another time, not their time or any time between then and now. Well, at this point, you're thinking, I hope, if you've been reading Scripture, you may say, well, what about the use of all these personal pronouns? In verse number 4, he said, you... In verse number 6, he said, Ye shall hear of wars. So isn't he referring to the disciples? Well, no. He's referring to Jews in general because that's the way that prophets spoke. Isn't that the way they spoke in the Old Testament? Often when the prophets were speaking, they were speaking to the people that were right there in front of them in their time, but the message that they gave was for the future. And the pronouns that are used refer to people that are in the future. Now, let me give you an example of that. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 33. And this is just one of many examples because it follows this same type of um, construction throughout Old Testament prophecy. But in Isaiah 33, in verse number 17 and following, we have one of these prophecies where it says, Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. They shall behold the land that is very far off. Thine heart shall meditate terror. Where is the scribe? Where is the receiver? Where is he that counted the towers? Thou shalt not see a fierce people, a people of a deeper speech than thou canst perceive, of a stammering tongue that thou canst not understand. Look upon Zion, the city of our solemnities. Thine eyes shall see Jerusalem, a quiet habitation, a tabernacle that shall not be taken down, not one of the stakes thereof shall ever be removed. Now, obviously, that's telling us he's speaking of something future uh, and not the destruction in AD 70. He says, But there the glorious Lord will be unto us a place of broad rivers and streams, wherein shall go no galley with oars, neither shall gallant ship pass thereby. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. So you look at all those personal pronouns and the possessive pronouns, and some of them are in Old English, the King James English, thine, and so on. But it says thine, and they, and thou, and us, and our. So who is he referring to? Well, the verses themselves are talking about the millennial kingdom. So these are spoken to people that are in that time, but it refers to people living at the time of the millennium. And so this is what we find Jesus doing in Matthew 24. He prophesies in the same way. He's speaking to the disciples, 
But it's referring to Jews that will be alive when the kingdom comes, that will be alive when the tribulation starts, that will be alive when the millennial kingdom is ushered in by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to make one last point before I close today. And I want to reemphasize that this passage is not speaking of the church age and that nobody who's a part of a church will see what he's talking about here. So here's your final point. The church is excluded from consideration. And you say, well, how do I know that? I'm glad you asked me the question. Uh, this can't be talking about the church because the church will be gone. Now let's go back to First Thessalonians and we'll make this short and sweet because we'll probably get into this again. But you remember that great passage I mentioned it ago in chapter 4? 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're all familiar with that because that speaks of the rapture of the church. Look at verse number 4, chapter number 4, verse number 13. Paul says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Now, there he's talking about those that have died. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord shall not prevent or precede them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord." Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Because Christ will come and he will catch his church, church up into the air to be with him. Now the Latin word for caught up in verse number 17 is rapturo. And that's where we get the word rapture. And so when Christ returns, all of those that are alive will be caught up into the air to be with him, and they won't worry about holding out during a terrible time of tribulation because they're not going to be there to see it. And this is why Paul says, comfort one another with these words. Now go down to chapter 5 again. Verse number 3 is where we found that part about the travail, about the birth pains. That's the same as the tribulation that... Uh, he speaks of, Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24. And then guess what? Look at verse number 4. He says, But ye, brethren, are not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. Those in the church will not worry about the tribulation because we're not people that are lost and live in the dark. We're not going to be overtaken by the suddenness of destruction because we're not going to be here. In verse 5, he said, you're the children of the light. You're the children of the day. You're not of the night. You're not of the darkness. So there's a distinction between those who will be left and those, or those who will be here during that time and those who will be taken away. The ones that are children of the light are going to be taken away. Now, how else do we know that we're not going through the tribulation? We'll look down to verse 9 in chapter 5. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what wrath is he talking about? Well, it's the same subject. I mean, he's certainly not talking about hell. Hell doesn't make any sense in this context. But if we take into consideration the very thing that was bothering the Thessalonians, this makes sense 
Because we know that the whole thing here is the end times and the wrath is when God plunges the world into the throes of the tribulation. So he says we're not going to experience God's wrath that's poured out on the world. And the salvation that he's speaking of there is not the initial salvation where you receive Christ by faith, but he's talking about salvation from these end times. Salvation from the tribulation that's coming on the world. Now we go back to first chapter in First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 1 and in verse 9. Paul says to the church that he witnessed to them and they had turned from idols to serve the living God. And then what were they doing? He says in verse 10, And to wait for the Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. And so they were waiting for Christ to come from heaven to do what? To deliver them from the wrath to come. And that's what happens in chapter 4 with the rapture. Christ comes to deliver them from the wrath to come. So, Paul tells them because of that, they, they haven't missed the rapture. That's what they thought. They thought that they were in the tribulation. And his point here is, that can't happen. Comfort yourselves with this, because you haven't missed the rapture. And when it comes, you're going to be delivered from the wrath to come. And so we know in Matthew 24, Jesus is not talking about the church age. If you go back to verse number 3 in Matthew 24, the disciples ask about the end of the world. Now, world there is not the Greek cosmos that we find in John 3.16, where the world means people. But here the, world is actually, the word is actually aeon. That means the age and at this point, the disciples knew nothing about the church age. The end that Jesus is describing here is not the church age. It's the end before the millennial kingdom. And isn't that exactly what they want to know? When is the millennial kingdom coming? When is the end? And so for more than a thousand years, the Jews have been promised this kingdom. And when will it come? Not at the destruction of Jerusalem. Not at the rapture. It's not going to come until the birth pains, until the tribulation. And then when the sorrows of the tribulation begin upon Israel, after the birth pains, the baby's going to be born. That's when the kingdom will come. Now, I hope you understand that better now, because in one lesson we've talked about the premillennial, pre-tribulational rapture of the church and the tribulation upon Israel and the timing of the kingdom. And so it would be a false positive to think that the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 would be the beginning of the kingdom. And so Jesus gives them the clues to show how that they can avoid that error. So here's the good news for those of us that know Christ. We're looking for his coming. And he's going to come and get us just specifically so that we don't have to go through the wrath that's coming. Just specifically, Jesus is coming back so that we don't have to go through the tribulation period. And his coming will be exactly timed to avoid that wrath that is to come. Now, you see, the Lord wants us to study this so we have right understanding, so that we have the right hope. But let me tell you about the other side. And that is, this is about going through the tribulation. Jesus is speaking about Jews and others that will go through the tribulation and that could be true for you if you've not yet trusted Christ. Now, a few weeks ago, I said that no one who hears the gospel now 
will believe the gospel later after the rapture. That if you miss the rapture and you know about Christ, there is no hope. Now let me give you one verse on that, Second Thessalonians. In Second Thessalonians, Paul goes on and he speaks more about the day of wrath. And he describes the Antichrist. And then he says something very, very peculiar in chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. He says there, And for this cause God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now the tribulation will be a time of so much trouble that you would think everybody will turn to the Lord. I mean, how else are we going to get out of this? Uh, what are we going to do? The tribulation is so terrible, so many horrible things that everybody will turn to the Lord. But the Bible says no. Why don't they turn to him? Because it says he won't let them. These are the days of seared consciences. God's not going to let them turn to him. Now, over and over in Revelation, you'll see this, uh, these birth pains that correspond to Matthew 24. You will read about those later, and you'll see many, many times that it says, but they would not repent. Here was this terrible thing that just happened, and then it says, but they will not repent. And the reason is, God sends them strong delusion so that they believe a lie. And you might say, well, I didn't know that God would do that. Well, you better get acquainted with the God who controls all things. God is sovereign over all of his creation. He never asks you what you think that he ought to do. So one day he's going to say, no more. That's it. You've rejected him for the last time. And when you reject Christ, you're on a slippery slope because destruction may come upon you. Now, for sure, Matthew 24 is primarily about the Jews and about the kingdom. That's, that's why the questions are asked. It's about the tribulation. Many will believe during that time, and they'll be taken into the kingdom. But I'm telling you, don't count on being in that number. If you hear the gospel and you believe it, and you don't believe it now, then you will not be saved from the day of wrath. No matter what happens... You'll have strong delusion to believe a lie. You know who that strong delusion is who brings the biggest lie? The Antichrist who pretends to be God and people are fooled that he is God. Second Thessalonians will also tell you that he sits in the temple saying that he is God. And people will believe the lie. So what does the Bible always say? Trust Christ now. Believe him now. Don't take the chance that he comes without you knowing him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the strong warnings that we find here. Lord, you've laid out everything that we need to, to see that we need to come to you now, that salvation is now. And these things are not hidden. These aren't secrets. These aren't things you're trying to keep from us. It's not like you're trying to sneak up on us and catch us doing something wrong. You've given us all the warnings that are here. We have all the proof, all the evidence that we need, that we need to trust you now and not put this off. And if we do put it off and you should come or we die without knowing you, it's all our fault. Because you've given plenty in your word to tell us. And you've given us Jesus Christ to save us. And so please speak to someone's heart today. Open their eyes to this truth that they may come to you and realize the only hope that there is at the end of the world, at the end of life is Jesus Christ. 
In his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.